Well, we live in uh, critical times, crisis times. Um, that's true of every age and every generation. They have their own challenges and their own difficulties that they face. There are, however, um, certain times that the issues as far as the church is concerned or as far as nations are concerned are more critical than others. And no one, I think, would probably choose to be born in a time like that. But um, the Lord knows our times, and he places us in the times that are perfect for us. And he calls us to be his people in whatever time we find ourselves. This kind of thing is mentioned at least five times in the Old Testament. Uh, Job talks about it. Isaiah talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it twice. But I would like to read the one from Ecclesiastes in chapter 9. And this is what he says, verse 12. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. And so we don't always choose the time in which we get to live. And we don't always plan for crisis or for bad times ahead. But as we look at uh, the news and as we listen to the reports and see what's going on around the world, um, it seems like one crisis after another, one difficulty after another. And the tendency is to feel trapped or suffocated. Uh, we don't know what to do or how to live or what's expected of us in those times. The Hebrew people have gone through many such times as that. And the book of Esther records one. And it has a, a call to people um, in the book of Esther. For her, it was a, um, a personal call. But in the book of Esther, you remember that there were a people that were subjugated and had been for a long time. This is when the, the Babylonians had been defeated and replaced by the Persians. But still, the Israelites were in captivity in a foreign land. Many of them, because of the um, pretty open response of Babylonian and Persian politics, their civil service was open to anyone who had abilities. And so you weren't, you weren't penalized if you had gifts that would be useful to the government. And so the government often made use of those kinds of people. And he did that not just for the Hebrews, but for all the many captive peoples under the whole Persian Empire. And so if you had abilities, if you had talents, if you were willing to work hard and be committed to, to the country, then you could rise to powerful positions. There was one man who was uh, an Amalekite by the name of Haman. And he rose to a very, very prominent position in the Persian government. And he was a very proud, arrogant man, as many powerful people are. Um, I don't know, power, sometimes people start thinking that they have earned it or they deserve it or it's owed them or something. And it's not that way at all. Power is given by God for service. 
And usually that's the only reason that it's given, is to serve. And so that's why we have all the biblical um, roles of models for leadership, like shepherds or, or servants or that kind of a idea there. So Haman, being the proud man that he was, demanded everyone bow down every time he walked in the room. And there was a Jew by the name of Mordecai, who was also a pretty prominent man in his own right, but he was a man who believed you bow the knee only to God. And so when Haman went by, Mordecai stood up. And uh, some of the other servants, um, public officials said to, to Mordecai, don't you, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You need to bow before this guy. And Mordecai refused. Well, Haman got to notice it. And then he found out that Mordecai was a Hebrew. And this brings animosity that was close to a thousand years old between the Amalekites and the Hebrew people. The Amalekites had attacked the Israelites on, during the Exodus, uh, raided their camps, um, destroyed and captured anybody who lagged behind, were a constant threat to them, engaged them in battle several times. And all through the days of, uh, of Saul and all of them, they were c- continuous warfare. And Saul had been committed, commissioned by God to destroy the Amalekite people because they had had many, many years to repent and they had refused and so God was going to destroy them. You remember that um, Saul compromised on this and it cost him the kingship. But they, they did uh, destroy most of the people. But there were some survivors and Haman was one. And now he was in a powerful position and he saw Mordecai and it just so happened that uh, Mordecai was an ancient uh, descendant from King Saul who had tried to eliminate the Amalekites all those hundreds of years in the past. But those kinds of issues are the kinds of issues that our world faces today. That's the problems in the Middle East. That's the problems in Africa. It's the problems in South America, in China and these other places, Russia. It's the places where people who have been long oppressed, it was the, the problem that took place in, in uh, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. These peoples who have long-standing hatreds that have been, tr- have been taught and passed down father to son for many generations. After a while, they forget what started the initial problem, but they just know that those are people you hate and those are people you try to kill if you can. And it's drilled into them uh, from young. And so we pass on those kinds of uh, sins of the fathers visited on the sins of their descendants to the third and fourth and many more generations if it's not stopped. That's what was taking place here. So Haman decides he's going to obliterate, destroy, uh, have a genocide, a pogrom against the Jews in the whole Persian Empire, and he's in a position to do so. He gets permission from the uh, Persian emperor, seals it with the Persian emperor's king, king's seal, and once it's written in the Persian law, it cannot be changed, not even by the king. Once it's written in the law books, it will not change. So the situation looks pretty hopeless, and they're drawing close to that time. Now, unbeknownst to the emperor, his new bride is Hebrew. She didn't let people know. And she is now the queen of the Persian Empire. 
And by law, she is under threat of death and the king doesn't even know it. So Mordecai, who happened to be Esther's uncle, comes to her and says, look, this is the situation. And um, just because you're in a position of prominence there and nobody knows about it, don't think that you're going to be spared. And so in the book of Esther, in chapter 4, when the crisis is about to come, verses 12 through 14, and that's not the right text. Hang on a second, let me find the right one here. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong book. That, it helps if you're in the right book. That's better. It is Esther chapter 4. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. And what she said was, because uh, Mordecai was saying, you're the queen, go into the presence of the king and intercede for your people because it affects your life as well. And uh, the law of the Persians was, if you go into the king's presence without his asking you to come, the penalty was death unless he... He said, okay, you can come in. Well, she hadn't seen him in a while. Um, this this uh, Persian king was one of the ones who's been fighting with the Greeks, you know, Thermopylae and, and all of that, the Spartans and all. He was one of those guys. So he had, he had his mind on other things. But So she understood that if she went into the presence of the king uncalled for, it could mean her life. So when Esther's words were repeated to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa. That's the capital. And fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. Night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done I will go to the king. Even though it is against the law. And if I perish. I perish. So she's taking a very. Courageous stand here. And so we wonder sometimes why we are born at this time, at this place. And we look around and we see some of the crisis. We look at closer to home at some of the issues facing our community, our county, our city. Um, some of the things that are taking place in schools and other areas um, around us. And we think, well, you know, why do I have to be in such a, a time or a place? It may be God's plan. God's will for you to be at this place at this time for the kingdom of heaven. In John chapter 12, Jesus also faces a similar kinds of crisis. The triumphal entry has already taken place. He knows he has a short time to live. It's in John chapter 12 that he is going to talk about 
the, the kernel of grain that falls in the ground and dies. And as he's facing this, this is what Jesus says. Now this is Jesus, God's son. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, because he alone knew what was coming. Crisis time. God's son, my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That was the prayer that Jesus prayed. It's the prayer that he's going to pray later in the Garden of Gethsemane when he calls his disciples to watch and pray with him. And it says that his heart is troubled and his uh, heart, his mind and heart were filled with anguish. That's suffering. And you remember that even in, it was cold because uh, the disciples, Peter, even when Jesus was on trial, was out warming his hands by the fire with uh, the people in the courtyard while Jesus was being tried. And that's when they began to ask him if he was a follower of Jesus. So it was cold. But in that coldness, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating. And he's sweating. His sweat was like drops of blood, thick and heavy. And so the prayer during the times of crisis, Father, save us from this hour, or should it be no? God has us here for a reason at this time. The prayer in our hearts needs to be, Father, glorify your name. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, um, this is a time of transition for the nation. It's not a happy time. It is a time of expectation, though. Uh, there's been long animosity between the Hebrews and the Philistines, and it's going to continue on for another couple generations. But they're in a crisis mode because they're just coming out of the period of the judges. Samuel is the last of the judges. He's one of the first of the uh, start of the prophetic movement began with him. He's a priest. He's an a intercessor. He's a lot of different things. But in all of those, he is a key transitional figure for the nation of Israel. Their history will never be the same after Samuel. And what was taking place is the people were wanting an earthly king. They'd been judged for quite a long time by judges, where God was the king, the judges and the, and the, the priests and the prophets were God's instruments. But now they wanted a king like all the other nations. They weren't content just to have God expressing his rulership through anointed leaders. They wanted a king that they could see and set up a government and all the other kind of stuff that goes with it. And the idea of kingship wasn't wrong. It was the timing and the way that they were going about it that was sinful. And Samuel knew it. And it grieved Samuel. But God told him to go ahead because um, this was God's going to accommodate the people. So politically, things were not going the way they wanted it to, the way God wanted it to. Um, it was going that way the way the people wanted it to. And Samuel knew 
that that was a crisis situation. He explained to them what the king was going to do, how he was going to abuse that power, and how it was going to cost them and their families and their sons and daughters. And they looked at that and they said, okay, we want a king anyway. And so God said, okay, I'll give you a king. And so they did. So in chapter 12, they're affirming and anointing Saul as their first king. He's a man chosen by God. God changed his heart, put his spirit upon him. And as he walked with God at the beginning, uh, the blessings of God were there. But this is the time, the crisis, when the, hand, when the, uh, the reins of power is being transferred from the prophet and the judge over to the king. Now, one of the things that's important about this and one of the things that Saul abuses is the whole issue of separation of church and state. He makes Saul a king. He's not a prophet and he's not a priest. And when he begins to act like one, he brings condemnation on himself and upon his nation. So it's very clear about this. So as they gather the people together, they're about to anoint Saul king. Uh, Samuel says, I'm going to show you what an evil thing this is. And it's during harvest and they call for uh, a rain. It's not their time for rain and, and God does that and the people see it and they acknowledge it. And so in verse 19 of chapter 12, the people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of His great name, the Lord will not reject His people, because the Lord was pleased to make you His own. Now listen what Samuel says. He's opposed to what's going on. He knows it's not the best thing for them. What's his position as prophet and priest of this people? As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. This is the position we in the church are right now. Uh, whether we agree with what's happened or not, whether we agree with what comes to pass in the future or not, whether we agree with what's happened in the past or not, as people of God, this is our position. Far be it from us to, to sin against God by failing to pray for our government and for the people of this land. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. And so this, this is where the church needs to stand up and be the church. Um, we're in the position that we're in partly because the church has lost its voice um, in the community. We've allowed the secular state to come in. We've allowed social issues to take dominance and secular ideas and opinions to change our laws and our practices in the way that we live, lifestyles. And they've done it legally because we have not taken the stand that we've needed to take as people. So notice that Samuel doesn't say, I'm going to go off here by myself and pray for you and God help you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to, to still be who I'm called to be. He's still going to have, he's going to be the prophetic voice for God in the country. 
He does it by example, by the example that he lives. And that's why we're being called to do here, to be the example that God wants us to be. Not failing to pray, but standing up and demonstrating what is good and right. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Now, eventually, they persisted in that, didn't they? And that's why Esther found herself in the position that she was in, and Mordecai and others, because they had persisted in the evil. And so God took away their king and their country and the priesthood and the temple and he took all of that away and he said okay now it's just going to be you and the word of God so that's where we are this morning with the word of God and a call to prayer and consistent living and to take a stand whenever and wherever we can um, strongly respectfully and as we read through the New Testament then we end up with Romans 13 1 through 7 and 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 uh, both men Paul and Peter Paul writing from prison he's imprisoned by the Roman emperor in Rome or getting ready to go there and um, both men, Paul and Peter, are going to be executed by the Roman government. And this is the Roman government. This is the kind of government that both Paul and Peter write to the church and says, the authority comes from God. You need to submit to it. Uh, you speak out for change. You stand up for what's right. But you submit respectfully and lawfully um, for what's right. And so Peter is very strong. For the Lord's sake, you submit to every authority instituted among men. And you give to them what, what is due to them. If you owe taxes, you pay your taxes. If you owe revenue, you pay your revenue. If you owe respect, you give them the respect that's due the office because the office is from God. And you be a good citizen. Now that's the New Testament's instruction for people under a pagan, uh, oppressive, antagonistic government. And it's a call to us today. By God's grace, our country may be able to be turned around. Um, and if it does, it's because of God's grace and because of His mercy. In the book of Exodus, chapter 22, another thing that we need to keep in mind, we, need to, we have needed to keep in mind uh, very strongly the last few years, but also in the future. What it says, part of the, the law system that God set up, is do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. You get that? Past, present, or future. Do not blaspheme God. Do not curse the ruler of your people. Both of those were punishable by death in the Old Testament. It goes even further. 
While they were in captivity, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, two groups of captives have already gone to Babylon. Judah and Jerusalem are still fighting. There's battle going on outside the gates against the Babylonian army who is, has them under siege and is about to destroy them. During that time period, Jeremiah in Jerusalem writes a letter to the exiles that are already in Babylon. And this is what he says. So he's in Jerusalem being attacked by the Babylonians. He's writing to the refugees that have already been deported. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried, all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God says, I put you there as a refugee. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers there. Do not decrease. And refugee camps normally are places where people die uh, often. And so he's saying, no, build houses, uh, plan for permanency. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What a difficult thing to say to these people in captivity as refugees, some of their relatives back in Jerusalem in the process of dying, uh, fighting, uh, being overcome, the war isn't over. They're still in the middle of the crisis. And Jeremiah says, this is God's will. This is God's plan for you to be here at this time. Settle in and pray for Babylon. You're not praying that they be destroyed. You're not praying that God will attack them and carry them away. You're praying for their peace and prosperity because you have an opportunity here to rebuild and make a difference. Even in captivity. So Paul, just before his death, writes to his son and one of his sons in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Again, now Paul's still in prison. And um, still facing trial. And he says, I urge then... First of all, Timothy is the young pastor of the church at Ephesus and a man that he knows well, has traveled with him and worked with him many years and has been faithful. I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. That testimony was crucified under Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Written, uh, this letter written by Paul, who's going to lose his head uh, under the Roman emperor. And he's writing to the church, you pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. And he said, what is the will of God? This is good and it pleases God. He calls us to, to be solid citizens and to pray for our leaders. Because there's only one God and one mediator. And Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all men. He gave his life as a ransom for the men who nailed him in the cross. He gave his life as a ransom for the people who tried and condemned him. He gave his life as a ransom for you and for me. The testimony given at its proper time. The word testimony is the word that forms the basis of the word martyr. And it does that because so often in Jesus' time and in the early 300 years, first 300 years of the church, uh, to give a testimony meant that you became a martyr in one form or another. And um, people have prayed for a long time. Oh, I wish we were uh, like the church in the first century. Well, that prayer is being answered. Uh, they look at it because of the, the grace and the power and the presence of the Lord, and that's all true. But the grace and the power and the presence of the Lord was there in the midst of crisis and persecution and judgment. And it was not easy. Uh, to walk with the Lord in those days. So here we are, um, a transition period within our own government, uh, which happens every four or eight years, depending on if the incumbent gets reelected again. Um, and by God's grace, we live in a country where that transition is fairly smooth. It's smoother than it's anywhere else in the world. Uh, we've lived in other countries and I've been in other countries during election times and every time people die because uh, people get killed by the opposition and all-out war is threatened and sometimes it, it bursts over into uh, civil war. So our, our country has many faults and uh, many needs but at this point in our history we still have freedom and it's a freedom that's been bought at a price uh, it's been freedom that's been maintained at a price. And so we thank God for sending men and women who are willing to do that on our behalf. And we need to pray for them because they are on the front lines, not only here but in other countries around the world, in the air and in the seas and all, under the seas and all of that, all the rest. And we need to keep them in our prayers. Crisis time at home means greater crisis abroad. And so um, we need to be like the people of the Old Testament. For such a time as this, we need to be people who are praying and worshiping, people who are making a difference by the morals that we keep within our own home and family, by the strength that we have in building strong families, by coming before the Lord as His people 
and not backing down from any of the social issues to take the stand that needs to be taken uh, with an eye to God and a conscience that's guided and cleansed and directed by the Holy Spirit. And so it's a, it's a call to arms on behalf of the church. Um, shall we look around and say, Lord, save us from this hour? Or shall we say, Father, glorify your name in us and through us. Rise up within us, Lord. May your spirit make us to be the people of God, the church, your body, with a consistent, um, powerful witness by our life, by our words, by our dealings with one another. In Jesus' name, let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you have poured out upon this nation. We look at our history and we see that we are a nation that has been blessed since the foundation of our country. We also see the, the difficulties and the times when we are torn apart. We see the sins of people in high places. We see the sins of common people rising up and leading us in wrong directions. And yet through that short history, you have been faithful. You've brought revival. You've brought times of repentance, times of pouring out of your spirit, times of forgiveness and cleansing. And Father, we pray that you would do it again. And we see this transition as an opportunity, not just for governments and for society, but for the church to regain its calling and to find its voice once again, to be a prophetic voice that speaks out the words of God boldly and plainly, without fear and without intimidation. Give us strength, give us courage, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in us anew and afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.